Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, it is another Pleasant Valley Sunday. Thank you to the monkeys for that little bit. Lo- love the monkeys. And I think, I think very possibly my next guest, who you hear quite often almost every day with me now, Mike Myers, would agree with me. Aren't the monkeys one of the best bands ever? Um, yeah, I would say uh, next to the Beatles. Uh, the monkeys, number one. Yeah. And so this Pleasant Valley Sunday, I felt it was kind of fitting Sunday. And also, it's like a... It's sort of a story of sameness, right? So here we are again, in quarantine again. Uh, just another Pleasant Valley Sunday. <laughs> what can I tell you? Oh, I like that. Yeah. So what's up? I know you, that uh, you have been doing an experiment with social media, and I thought you should share that with us today. Well, um, it started off with uh, a post, Farmer's Market to open Monday exclamation point, hooray, exclamation point. Everyone, please be optimistic, please be wise, and don't live in fear. Oh, boy. Um, that got ugly. Well, explain um, it to us, because I know that it, it really affected you and, and made you take a drastic move. Well, yeah, I guess, I, I guess it was kind of drastic. As some of the comments that were made were just... Absolutely, you know, it was it was kind of it was kind of sort of balanced, but some of them were just really nasty, mm. just personal attacks, and um, but that's that's okay. Uh, and then let me follow that up with this right here, because I had a a brother in Christ, uh, okay, tell me that uh, you know I was basically a pot stirrer. Now I used to smoke pot, but I don't anymore. Okay. Oh, sorry. I, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, hey, you know, live. You know, that was who you are. No regrets, right, Michael? Yeah. Well, so here's the here's here's the timeline. Uh, at eight forty-five last or April twenty-fourth, farmers markets open Monday. Hooray! Everyone, please be optimistic, be wise, and don't live in fear. Well, then, uh, yesterday at six twenty-eight in the manana. Mm-hmm. Today, I will start practicing social media distancing until the hatred begins to level off. It's toxic in here. Trump 2020. Wow. That I'd, was a, probably a little bit of a pot stirrer. That one I had seen, and that one had a few comments, but I, I guess I missed the original post. But here's the thing, and you're kind of proving it, that they don't want to – some people just don't want to hear we can get out and do things. They just want to say, that's not safe. We have to stay inside. No, we have to go out and do things too. Interesting is that there was a reference made to me being a pot stirrer, but the initial pot was actually one of uh, wasn't stirring. I was trying to be, you know, be optimistic, be wise, and it just got ugly. Mm. That's why I posted the other one and went, "I can't do this. I just need to get away from this for a while." And yeah, throwing the Trump Trump twenty twenty in there, maybe. Yeah, I suppose a little, but it was interesting to not look at any. This this morning was the first time I looked at any posts. You know that. Well, you don't know that unless I. <laughs> but you went twenty four hours, I, and so if people really yeah. feel like, well, I think you can teach people a lesson here because if they really feel they do have to distance themselves from this whole thing, the platforms. How 
How can they do it for even 24 hours? How did you do it? Did you get a little anxious not looking at social media, or were you calm about it? You know, it would be... Did I get anxious? I, I was getting anxious, and I wasn't liking... I don't like anxiety. I mean, and here, if there's some way that I can do something that will help eliminate some of that anxiousness and not have to take... <laughs> Not have to get drunk or take, uh, oh, I don't know, Xanax. Yeah, that's the one. Um, uh, and it worked. And it was really pretty nice. Well, let me ask you, do you do crosswords? Do you do anything word gamey to get your mind off when you're anxious? Um, no. I do projects. Now, today I'm going to pick back up on uh, putting a ceiling fan in our living room, the only room in the house that doesn't have a fan. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And um, I will probably take another day away from social media. Well, isn't this the best day to do it Sunday? You could just kind of relax and not worry about who's commenting on what. And just, as you like to say, be with the Lord a little more on his day, on, on Sunday. Well, and, and, and to me, every day, really, if, if, every day, if every day is his day in my temple in my heart i'm gonna this has been really fascinating Mm. it's been very um uh just revealing of how i don't know if you i guess if you're gonna if you're gonna be around a lot of people with just a lot of hatred and not a whole lot of hope and love and faith um but i don't want to you know hide i mean god says don't don't i'm not going to take you out of the world I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe you in the world, but don't be of the world. That's quite a statement. Mm. Well, I feel like there was one person of the world, wasn't that Christ, who was of the whole world? Um, yeah, he was, well, he, he was, he was in it, and yet, he, that, I, I don't know, it's starting to hurt my head already. Mm. Mm. Okay. Anxious. <laughs> I need a drink. Hey, you know, I we haven't talked about this yet, but you do do, you do do, we all do do, right? But uh, you do a live stream on um, 24 hours, and if people are interested in what music you're playing there, how can they find it? How can they find the music? or the- Your live stream of music that goes on every day. Well, you know, I'm glad you asked that, Alex. Um, uh, what's the easiest way to, well... Go to TuneIn. Okay. And uh, actually, I think I might have a different... Well, go to TuneIn and just put in the search M-U-K, Muck, Muck, and there's a story behind that. Mm. And then, no space, and then the word radio, Muck Radio, and it'll pop up. And right now, you'll be hearing uh, a gentleman from Australia. Uh, His name is Tom... French, who is just a hoot. He's a youth pastor, and that's really where my heart is mm. um, with kids. Uh, and I'm just a big one. Well, you had this great you had this great story a couple of days ago about these kids that threw away their med their drugs and were yeah. getting clean. And I I I mean, are you going to bring them on the radio uh, on your pod? Well, you know, I had this uh, young man on before, and he had had this. Epiphany and was coming back to Jesus and because I this young man used to come to youth group and he was probably twelve or thirteen and I had him on a, on a show and the next day he was back you know he it was just like hey whatever you know and yeah that was today or mm. yesterday today is the day and I'm back doing my same old crap which reminds me if you're somebody who claims to be a follower and a lover of Jesus something should change. You mean he's gone back to it? Wait, what exactly? Or are you yeah, going back? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, he went right back to the same old drug you use. Know, the same old stuff again after I allowed him to come on thinking, you know, hey, this is pretty cool. He's done with this stuff and right on. God got a hold on him, which reminds me of a song. And he's got this new life going. And it's like, yeah. The, the story of the four soils is just a powerful story about, you know, how do we receive the truth? Um, does it sink down deep, get some deep roots, 
or is it like, oh, this is great, I love Jesus, mm. Jesus loves me, I have a good new life, and then it's gone because the things of the world choke it out. Well, that's. Let me ask you: Did you find out from him personally that he got back on it, or? No, that's a good question. I don't recall that for sure. Okay. Um, but I do know that he did go right back to the same, the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, you know, who am I? My goodness gracious! I can tell you things that God knows that I don't need to tell you because I just uh, just reminded me of the the fact that I'm. Well, this this is, and that's what, sorry, but that's what Christ pointed out, right? Like, if you cast the stone, have you not sinned as well? Something to that line. Yeah, the lady they caught in adultery, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, man, he turned that right around. And then, and then, and then the speck in the, the speck in the log. I mean, you can't, I had a pastor friend of mine say something about stir the pot much. Mm. Now, I love this guy dearly. But this is a guy who, because of his calling, can't really be upfront about everything that he, he feels about, you know, his opinion on things. Sure. He's got to stay publicly neutral. Mm. And, and I look, in fact, I have the verse pulled up here. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers. I was going to post, well, so much for blessed are the, are the peacemakers because I want to be a peacemaker. Mm-hmm. I really do. And that's why the, the hope thing. So I just printed off, I don't know how many pages of all of this stuff that these people were saying. I don't want it. My first thought was, you know what? They posted it publicly. They flat out said, somebody said, well, oh, did I hurt your feelings? Did you delete my post? I didn't delete anybody's post. So right there, the accusations, there they are. And I wasn't even there. It is amazing, though. Some people I know delete comments if they disagree with the person. It's like, why would you do that? Just that that's censoring the page too much. Well, and I have a friend of mine who uh, flat out said, Mike, don't, because I said, you know what, I think I'll delete this after uh, 15 minutes or something because it just got uglier and uglier. I know. And this buddy of mine said, don't delete it. Leave it out there so people – you know what? If I, if I put something out there publicly that was so nasty – and I turn around later, and it's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I did that. Boy, did I take that thing out of context. Mm. I would That would be a very humbling life lesson. Mike, let's talk about this for a minute. So this is where the podcast can come in, right? So you had actually people on your pod, like in the chat section, saying, Mike, don't take it down. You had that support as well, didn't you? Yes. So that's – I mean, that's important to say that these podcasts – are online and whatever you want to say about the internet, these things are, are impacting people's lives. And that's why they comment to us and say, Hey, here's what we think of what you're doing. It's kind of interesting to think of it that way. Uh, yeah. And there, there's a buddy of mine that I met through, through uh, podcasting out on the East coast, who is just a neat guy. And he's kind of sort of in the same boat of, you know, he'll kind of jump in once in a while to social media, but, um, we have some fantastic conversations, late night, one, two hour conversations. Um, and those are the kind of relationships I have. So I just, I just love them. But to be in this constant turmoil with somebody who you disagree with, mm. it's not worth it. I well, mean, I'm, well, I'm, I'm commanded to love them. And right. so the best thing for me to do sometimes is just. I just need to get get back. They're a little they're a little toxic for me, and maybe I am for them. And take some time to be alone with Christ and get get refilled with love. What um, it just is interesting, isn't it, that someone from the East Coast could open up their sort of life to talk to you and that, and yet people in your own town are bashing you. Like that says a lot about the community, right? <laughs> yeah. Yesterday I was uh, out. Uh, edging my, my sidewalk and mm. this young man came by and uh, told me who his name's Garrett oh look at that and uh, turns out that he was a young guy he used to come to youth group mm. and a friend of his and uh, one of the kids that came to youth group um, whom I'm going to reconnect with uh, how do I put this mm. weird the first thing that Garrett said was well we're definitely not on the same side of the you know we have different thing, different uh, political views. I said, that's fine. I talked to this gal the other day, and I said, man, I, if Trump ever comes between you 
you and I, and I picture me giving her a COVID safe hug, and Trump in the middle. It's like, ew, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't want that to ever happen. <laughs> I'm not married to Trump. He's not my idol. I, he, he says things I wish he wouldn't say, but the guy at least says them, and he's right. No, I, I hear what you're saying. And apparently there was some project earlier in the week that he was referencing about the disinfectant. But yes. but then, of course, I see 30 phone calls came into the like the city's health control because they were trying to put disinfectant in their body. So I just don't like that either. Well, I mean, maybe if they were to read the bottle, you know, somebody had said... That's why they put the label on the McDonald's coffee. <laughs> I mean, can't, you can't be somebody else's brain. You can't. Right. And, and then for that to be blamed on other people. Well, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just absurd, though, that 30 people actually thought that that's what he was talking about. That is, um. And did they? <laughs> um, what, did they? Do we know for a fact that 30 people did that? Yeah, 30. they recorded 30 phone calls in an 18-hour period post uh, the New York City Health Control. Huh. Wow, I'd love to see that. I'm going to send you the NPR article. See, I, I don't... NPR? NPR actually reported oh, that. Okay, so. that's a great news source. Are you being sarcastic? Or? Yeah, yeah I, I'm sorry. I, I, huh. I listen to NPR when I drive the kids back and forth, and it... You talk about one-sided. But I think that that's an important story to talk about because I, it's so stupid. But I do feel like I have to say on this podcast, hey, if you like Trump, don't go by swallowing disinfectant. I mean, I shouldn't have to say that, but there are people out there that would apparently hear that and just go you know, buck wild with, with Lysol. If, it's weird. But if you were to say to me, mm-hmm. Mike, you know, Trump said this. Don't do that. You know what I would think about you, Alex? You would think, what would you think? I would think you're an arrogant jerk. Okay. I'm just being honest. Really, so you're going to tell me, it's like, hey, this guy was buying, I'm not not trying to be nasty, but the uh, the other day I was at the the hardware store and a guy was buying a rake. And I said, uh, it looks like you're going to do some raking. And I said, no, wait a minute, you're going to change the oil in your car. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be nasty, but... It's and you know that's the that is the nasty side of me that I don't like. What I just pulled on you, I don't like that in me. Mm. I am really sorry. I owe you an apology. No, I get what I you're really, saying though. That's why I don't really talk about it because I, I I also think of the idea that we have to ignore those comments and not even bring it up if that makes sense. Um, yes. Because the you more what, mm-hmm. you know what you just you know the point that you just what you just helped me understand is. Mike, don't get so freaked out. <laughs> don't get so pulled into all of this stuff. And it's, I think the best thing for me is going to be to just start back, just being a little more careful on social media. Yeah, am I a podster? Yeah, and I could put back on there. Yep, not only, Sh- my guy's name is Sean. I know him well. Sean, I am a podster. I used to smoke pot, but, you know, and that, but, but I, that would just be. I don't know. Well, I know that... I love you, man. I'm uh, glad you said what you said because it brought out a part of me that I just need to stifle it. I need to control my tongue and my thoughts. Well, that's... uh, that's So, but in general, you would feel that someone telling people not to listen to the president would be, quote-unquote, quote arrogant? Like, is that how you, you would think of them? No, I would say... I would say listen to the president and realize that actually many people have said this guy just he hooked you (laughs) he threw this out there and you in fact this post i was thinking about you know it's kind of like saying uh uh preach it to a to a to a preacher it's like it's like throwing them a piece of meat Mm. you're just gonna preach all the more they're just gonna drive home the point all the more because you're encouraging them and what trump does he really plays this up weird i mean he's He's no idiot. He's a Trump. <laughs> and I think he does things just to get people to go over there. And then he comes back over here and he does his thing. Right. And in the meantime, he's gotten some neat stuff done. 
And these people are still over there, you know, ripping each other apart. Well, how about this? I've always thought that when Trump says something, right, it's kind of off the top of his head. And, (laughs) but, but then two days later, something verifies it. Like somehow, like, okay, we all know Obama didn't tap the wire, the tower, you know, Trump tower. But we do know they did surveil on Carter Page and people within the Trump campaign. So that, what he said there, ended up being somehow true because the Obama administration did wiretap his his campaign. There's no doubt about it. And so no one went back and said, you know what, Trump was right on that. They just ignored the fact that the, he was right on it. I Yeah, there's a... Uh post I'm looking at right here. This guy says the hate is not equal right now. Right now is worse than when Obama was in office. It's not even close. The, the thing that I'm seeing, Alex, and I've said this for a while, when Obama was in office, people were, the Republicans were so out to get, the birther thing. Mm-hmm. No, and now it's just, the pendulum has gone the other way and it's like, I just need to not get sucked into this, but I need to know what's going on. We had a talk last night, you and I did, about some stuff going on overseas. Those are important things that are happening in this world. For those who don't know, I'm probably going to do a little later about the topics I haven't covered yet, but those who don't know, there's a protest in Tel Aviv. And also those who don't know, Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister, has has actually divided up roles of the government with Benny Gantz, who was his opponent. And if I can, if I be here for a second, I'll just tell you what's going to happen here. So for 36 months... Netanyahu will continue as prime minister, while Gantz is sworn in as defense minister. I've never seen an election work like that. This is the most fascinating thing I've ever read, actually, about government anywhere. Then a year and a half from now, Gantz is going to take over the reins. So it's like they're splitting the government. I've never seen that before. Uh, And there's so many things that I haven't seen because I've never uh, been that involved in the first place. Which is not, I mean, I, I got one friend who says, he just, he doesn't look at the news, he doesn't listen to the news, he doesn't do anything with the news, and I'm like, well, you can't just live your life with your head stuck in the sand, you gotta know what's going on. Right, right. But like you and I have been talking about, what is a reliable news source that's not gonna be, uh, I checked out uh, one of them that somebody suggested the other day, and I, I, it's like, man, this sucker is, can you just give me the news without the bias? Right. No, exactly. Or, or just give us new. Yeah. So because a lot of these things have become opinion and not like straight news. Right. So this is the problem. And it's wow. I'm glad that you brought this up because my next guest is, is waiting in the wings. He's going to be with me in a minute. He wrote about the interesting White House stories that no one really has heard about and and Radio Hope, which you can listen to at 9 a.m. Eastern, by the way. Uh, he was a. He's a former journalist, so he's going to tell me about the fake news, what he thinks of it all as well later in the interview. So definitely want to stay tuned. And uh, we're going to jump over to you as well. What do you got on the pod today? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Perfect timing because that's what I was thinking about this morning. Uh, Miles McKee from Spain, originally from Dublin, Ireland, will be uh, – he's going to be preaching. I miss hearing a good live word from God's word, I just uh, I I need that. Well, you know, and he's he's in one of the hardest hit areas right now. Spain's still getting cases, and I'm sure his wisdom is going to be very important right now. Three thousand dollar fine if you left your house. <sighs> That's what he said, and mm. I'm like, wow, you know, she whiz. So anyway, hey, thanks for having. You got it. I love this, what we're doing. I I love the fact that you and I are continuing this. And for those who don't know, we've actually been seeing each other via the screen. So we've got a little double connection here. So there you go. Oh, I lost your face. You did. Do you get me now? Okay. All right, anyway. Oh, there you are. So as I was saying, we're doing video chat as well during this, so we're all in sync. And if you noticed before, we were kind of talking over each other, and now we can see each other. So that's even better. Reminds me of a song. Am I in sync? And then the song gets all out of whack. It's hilarious. All right. Well, we will uh, tune in to what you got going on at 9 a.m. And um, whatever wacky music you might actually play in that hour today. Well, no. It'll all be Miles. Well, no. Never mind. Mike is someone who you never know what's going to happen on the pod because he's just, he free flows it, which I love about it. So it's good. I don't know. Hey, talk to you tomorrow. All right. All right. All right.
All right, and so as we continue here, I'm going to have my Hal Markovitz on in just a minute, but did you hear the good news out of Albany yesterday? On the eligibility, because we had a limited capacity to test. As you increase the capacity to test, you can increase the eligibility. And first responders, healthcare workers, and essential employees. Why? Because these people have been carrying the load, and they have been subjected to uh, the public all during this crisis, and because they're public-facing, right? These are the people who you interact with. Uh, you get on a bus, this is the bus driver. You get in a subway car, this is the subway conductor. Uh, you are interacting with government. These are the people who you're interacting with. If they're infected, they could possibly spread it to a large number of people. So we're dramatically increasing the capacity with these groups. What are first responders, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, police officers? Police officers, state, local, county, sheriffs, etc. Also correction parole officers, probation officers. Uh, people who are in the prisons, they can now go to uh, the increased number of collection sites in the state. They're eligible to get a test. That is huge. So essential workers actually getting the testing now, expanding as Governor Cuomo expands the testing and the sites to go to, by the way. Um, he mentions later on. I would just say go to the Governor Cuomo's website and figure out where you can get a test. And again, a huge thank you to our essential workers, right? I mean, our health line worker, health care workers. Health care workers and our police officers that respond to crisis in this time, our EMTs that respond to crisis, that respond to calls, all of them. And to have and the MTA and to know that they're all going to be tested now little by little should actually help us bring relief, even more relief to this city. So that that gets ramped up. And now, without further ado. Hal Markovitz, he's an investigative journalist or was, and he ended up writing this book about the White House and uh, Hal Markovitz. How did you use your journalistic in in instincts to write a book of the most interesting stories that you found in the White House? Good morning. Well, I had covered uh, politics in where I live in Pennsylvania for uh, over 30 years. And, uh, you know, I always had kind of a fascination with it. And I kind of thought up this funny story about the... Uh, you know, an uh, ordinary house painter who gets hired uh, by the first lady to paint the White House. And once he shows up there and, and gets involved uh, with all the shenanigans and weird stuff that goes on in the White House. So that's kind of how the book came out of it. But it was an interest, my interest in politics and, uh, you know, uh, the, the weird things politicians do. That kind of led me to... Uh, start researching the White House. Well, let me first ask you this, because I, I know you've had a lot of different experiences, but i got to ask you about the White House dog. Any crazy White House dog experiences that, that you might have found that, that our listeners would enjoy hearing? Well, there was two uh, kind of dogs of note who lived in the White House, although many, many pets were in the White House. But the two funny stories that I came across about uh, the White House dog was uh, the first one involved the uh, dog named Millie who was owned by George and Barbara Bush and if you go online and you look for pictures of Millie the dog you'll see this you know just heartwarming pictures of the bushes strolling around uh, the White House grounds and Millie is kind of uh, trotting after them and it's just you know just terrific uh, kind of really sweet stuff. But I, as I looked into, further, looked into this further, I found out that uh, George Bush, George H.W. Bush, had a, kind of a weird kind of habit that he did with Millie, that Millie, uh, when, when the president went to take a shower, Millie often jumped in with him. Huh. Uh, George and Millie took showers together in the White House. 
Right, and well, that's that is pretty funny. And I know that, of course, George W. was in the White House, and he had his own pup. But wow, and, and how old was George at the time during his father's presidency? Oh well, I guess oh that would have been back in the nineties. So maybe uh, you know George W. Uh, was probably in his thirties by then. I would imagine. And of course, they had their own pet. Now, the interesting thing is, you know. This president doesn't have a dog, and people have actually noticed that, right? You mean President Trump? Yeah, President Trump has not had any pet in the White House yet. No, he doesn't. So that's that that that's kind of been an uh, an interesting thing. Now I'm reading this press byline that you've got, and I've got to ask you: with all the press conferences that we're seeing every day, there was one bizarre one with Dwight Eisenhower and his bowels. What is going on there? President Eisenhower uh, suffered a heart attack uh, and and lived through it. He recovered, and uh, his doctors called a press conference to brief the you know the brief the nation on uh, the um, uh, health of the president. And it was during that uh, press conference when the doctors were reassuring the country that the president was okay uh, that they disclosed that he had successfully moved his bowels. <laughs> that deeply troubled President Eisenhower. Well, when you think about it, I mean, I guess for such a a huge name in our military, right, in the World War, to know that his bowels work just showed us. I, I, it just is interesting that, you know, this big general, and that was what the doctors were focused on, right? I guess. Interesting. Well, it was healthy, so. Well, right, exactly. So that that's interesting. Now, when you... When you started to go through it, what other bizarre stories that I know you're dying to talk about um, have come your way? Oh, you know, it's almost endless. One of my favorite stories that I came across, and it's a big, it's absolutely made me laugh out loud, uh, was a story involving Elvis Presley uh, back in uh, 1970, I believe. Uh, Elvis Presley uh, was something of a police buff. He collected uh, badges and belt buckles, that sort of thing, from police departments. I guess he had a hobby. He had his eye on a badge from the Drug Enforcement Administration. He wanted a DEA badge. So he asked around, and he found out the only way he could get a DEA badge is to be deputized as a DEA agent. And, of course, that means to uh, join the DEA. Well, Elvis wasn't going to do that. So he thought up this plan. He called his guys together, you know, down at the mansion in, in Graceland. And he uh, told them, we're going to fly up to Washington today. We're going to drive right to the White House. And President Nixon is going to swear me in as a DEA agent. So everybody was gung-ho. So they piled into a car and they drove up to the airport. And they took a plane up to Washington and they hired a car and they went right up to the White House gate. Elvis gets out. He's got on this velour jumpsuit, you know, that Elvis was prone to wearing. And he goes up to the, the guard at the gate and he tells him what he's there for, to, to get sworn in by President Nixon into the DEA. So the guard calls into the White House and tells them what's going on. They had no idea Elvis was coming that day. So this story shoots around the White House uh, like crazy. What do we do about this? Why do you Elvis is at the door. What what should we do? So they finally decide to um, get him some time with the president and swear him in as a DEA agent, give him the badge. So they find him a little time, sort of like at the end of the lunch hour, when uh, the president would shake hands with visiting dignitaries. And they usher uh, Elvis into the Oval Office, and they they get a picture taken and. It's my understanding that photo of uh, Elvis and Nixon shaking hands is uh, one of the top-selling souvenirs at the Nixon Library. So Nixon uh, swears in Elvis, and it's, everybody's having a good time. And Elvis wants to show his appreciation uh, to the president, and he has brought a gift with him to give to the president. And it turns out to be a gun. Oh. 
Elvis had actually brought a gun into the White House and got it into the Oval Office. And I'm sure the Secret Service swallowed pretty hard. And I guess they weren't checking them all too quickly or too thoroughly as they, as they would today. But uh, it, everything went fine, and uh, Nixon accepted the gun. And <laughs> the funny postscript to this whole story is uh, after Elvis leaves with his badge, and Nixon turns to his aides, and he tells them that he really didn't know who that guy was, that he knew he was some kind of an entertainer, and that his daughters listened to his music, but who was that, the king of rock and roll? Well, you know, Nixon always kind of had a, a colder front to him, so that doesn't surprise me. Like, I, I don't know, he didn't seem to be culturally in tune, right, Hal? I guess he was kind of out of touch with a lot of things. Well, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned Elvis because I literally have an, a lamp right next to me with the Blue Sage shoes and an Elvis Presley signed, re you know, fake record. But it, it's just funny you mentioned him because he's literally, I'm staring at him right here in my room. So there you go. Does he have his uh, DEA? Does he have his DEA badge on? I'm looking at the outline of him on the <laughs> silhouette. I can't find that, but I'll keep looking. Hey, any other entertainers? You know, Sinatra was big, and I know also he found his way into the White House. Any stories of Sinatra, now that we're talking a little music here? I, I didn't run across anything about Sinatra. I know during the Ford administration, Gerald Ford, his daughters, uh, Susan and Steve, uh, were big music fans, and they saw this as the opportunity to uh, get to know a lot of celebrities the, the couple years they were in the White House. And they had... Uh, parties in the White House, and they would invite uh, all sorts of celebrities, singers in, uh, Peter Frampton, I think, uh, um, uh, the Beach Boys, uh, sure. Robbie Shankar, who was the, the sitar player, uh, George Harrison, I think. So uh, so all those, uh, you know, celebrities, uh, you know, were featured in the White House during the Ford years. But the really funny one actually occurred right after uh, Ford left. And that's when Jimmy Carter was in the White House. Right. And uh, they invited Willie Nelson over. Huh. And uh, Willie came to the White House. And as the story goes, he found his way up to the roof where he smoked a joint. That is, that would be Willie Nelson, right? That would be, that would be <laughs> Willie. I've got to ask you about Ford, though. I mean, the guy was known for falling all over the place. So in your research on Ford... Any funny falling stories that maybe the public didn't know? I feel like they knew every time he fell, though, right? I didn't. You know, I think I think his falls were pretty well documented, and I think everybody kind of saw everything they needed to know about about Gerald Ford uh, tripping over his own two feet. Would you so agree? I didn't, I didn't come across any kind of secret falling story. Well, would you agree? I mean, now that we're on it and you've been following this, I mean, they say Chevy Chase really changed his presidency because of the way he impersonated him on SNL. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that or not, but that was kind of the, the notion back then. Well, I am kind of old enough to remember that myself, and uh, it was a pretty funny gag, a pretty funny bit that he did, and, you know, perhaps uh, you know, he made Ford into something of a laughing stock. All right, so I, I'm looking at all the all the other stuff that you've covered in this book called The Painting the White House. Uh, first of all, why that title, Painting the White House? Oh, because of the painter. Well, again, the, yeah, yeah, I got you <laughs> on that. And so, a, uh, go ahead. The book is a novel, and, you know, it is kind of based on these weird things that go on in the White House, but it is a, it is a novel. It's a work of fiction, and it's the story of the house painter who shows up to paint the White House and puts down his drop cloths and his ladders and gets his rollers out and gets all ready to paint the White House and then finds himself involved in all these weird intrigues and stories and back and forth uh, uh, dramas that go on in the White House. But there is, if you are really into this, there is a lot of information in there on how to pick colors and effects of <laughs> Two coats of interior flat latex and all sorts of good stuff that painters would only know about. Okay, so what what's going on through this painter's mind when the president asks members of Congress to eat at the White House? What what's going on through his mind when he sees the president asking members of Congress to eat with him? Well, that story actually uh, goes back to uh, Jimmy Carter 
charged uh, members of uh, Congress to, uh, when, when he would invite them over for working breakfast or working lunches, he charged them $4.75 per meal to uh, eat in the White House with him. All the other presidents before, and I believe since, uh, have, you know, uh, let the members of Congress eat for free. But Carter, you know, was a bit of a, a fuss budget, and he um, charged me $4.75 uh, for their meals in the White House. Okay, so who, who were the Congress people back then? Like, obviously, this generation knows Pelosi and all that. Who were the high prominent uh, Congress people that were being charged for this? Oh, boy, I guess you go back to that. The Carter administration, you had guys like Tip O'Neill and, uh, 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 I guess, uh, John Hines from Pennsylvania, I remember, was, was in the Senate then. Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House. Uh, boy, you're asking me to really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess because some of these guys are still there. Cobwebs out of my brain. Cummings was probably there. Of course, he passed away now, but Elijah Cummings probably was there. I think Biden had to, had to be around that time too, right, uh, Joe Biden? That might have been a little before Joe's time. I think he got in a little later than the Carter administration. But uh, nonetheless, I'm sure whoever was in there couldn't believe the bill that they were getting uh, just to eat with the president. That is that is different. Um, but this administration, right? I mean, there's so many different... Uh, what do you say, quirks and weird things that happen and whatnot. What What is so unusual about this Trump administration that the that your painter has been seeing? The kind of the weird thing that I found out about uh, the Trump White House, and believe me, there is a lot of weirdness up there, I guess, but the um, president and the first lady, Melania Trump, uh, do not share a bedroom. And actually, that's not unusual. A lot of presidents and first ladies decide to uh, have their own rooms. And I, I suppose there's good reason for that, because the president, he's up all night on the phone, and he's talking to uh, leaders of other countries and other time zones, and I guess the first lady just wants to get to bed. <laughs> this case, though, is slightly different. The living quarters at the White House are on the second floor. There's actually something of an apartment up there. And that's where the president and his family live. And the first floor, of course, is all the diplomatic and the, and the uh, cultural centers and all that, and the working offices. That's all on the first floor. The president lives on the second floor. But there's actually also a third floor with some uh, living quarters up there. And it was during the Obama administration that uh, Michelle Obama's mother lived on the third floor of the White House president's mother-in-law. Right. So the Obamas move out and, and the Trumps move in. And Melania Trump discovers these rooms up there on the third floor. And that's where she lives. So the Trumps not only do not share a bedroom in the White House, they don't even share the same floor in the White House. Oof. That's uh, that's pretty <laughs> incredible. No, that is, that is mind-blowing. Of course, Sometimes you wonder, because she sometimes looks a little miserable next to him. I mean, it's, just, it's very interesting, their dynamic. And would you say, then, that sleeping on separate floors doesn't help their dynamic, or does it does it help them during this whole crazy presidency we're in? Well, I, I can't see that uh, it does help. Um, she's been pretty absent through this whole uh, national uh, emergency we have. So maybe she's just happy uh, hanging out on the third floor. Possibly, possibly. Now, I've got to ask then, did this administration inspire you to write this, or when did this? When did you actually start writing the book? No, I wrote this, uh, I wrote this uh, pretty much, uh, bef well, before the Trumps were in there, because, believe me, they're... There's no shortage of goofiness in the White House. The Trumps did not. Oh, of course not. It's, it's been it's been it wild all the way back to uh, you know even before the White House was built. So, well, talk about that because I know you've had something about the construction of the White House. What what weirdness just with the construction itself? Did you want to talk about? There's some what Betsy Donahue. What what do you what do you have to say about that as well? I know you mentioned it in your book. Oh, uh, okay. The um, White House, and we're going back to now, the 1790s or whatever, the White House was uh, designed by an architect named James Hoban, and Hoban 
actually won a competition to design the White House. Uh, he was awarded the contract, and just as a kind of a footnote there, uh, he actually beat out Thomas Jefferson for the job. And Jefferson had submitted his own plans, but the, uh, the committee picked Hoban, Hoban's design, and that's what they went with. So Hoban is designed the White House, and he's going to oversee the construction. And he decides the best way to do this is actually to live on the grounds, the construction grounds over there on Pennsylvania Avenue. So he has a cabin built for himself on the construction grounds, and he moves in. So he's overseeing the construction 24 hours a day, seven days a week. At some point, uh, Hoban decides that it's far enough along, I don't have to live here anymore, and he moves out of the cabin. And he leases the cabin to a carpenter named Donahue and his wife, Betsy. So the Donahues move in, and it was shortly after the Donahues were living in the cabin that it was discovered that Betsy Donahue was running a brothel out of the cabin. Oh, my. So I guess they, they were, the Donahues were kicked out, but the first official or unofficial uh, use of the White House grounds was as a brothel. Oh, my goodness. Very, and, very and then, good mark in American history right there. <laughs> I mean, talk about history repeating itself a little bit. It seems kind of crazy what happened in the Clinton years, too, knowing this fact now. I mean, how many people know this? Well, change of things to come. <laughs> yeah, really. What an, what an omen or what a, what a foreshadow, I guess you'd say. Um, okay, so the, I want to ask about any interesting stories. You know, the White House did burn... Didn't didn't it burn at one point? I remember the the Madisons were trying to get everything out of the White House. I don't know if you have any stories on that, but didn't it didn't it well, burn actually, down at yes. one point? Yes, actually, uh, it was uh, President Madison was in the White House uh, during the War of eighteen twelve, and as as history knows, as we know from history, uh, the British invaded uh, Washington D.C. and the city was evacuated and the president and his family uh, evacuated the White House. So the uh, British show up, and it's about 150 sailors, British sailors, uh, break into the White House. And they're walking around, and some of the sailors uh, find the president's uh, bedroom. And they, before they set fire to the White House and burned it down, uh, they stole his underwear. These uh, sailors, oh my. Uh, the British Navy. I imagine, you know, these, these uh, voyages across the ocean in those days took a few months, so it was probably hard to come by clean underwear. So that's what they wanted to take with them before they burned down the White House. Oh, right my God. Underwear. And, uh, oh, my goodness. So the, 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 the what is it, Dolly Madison? Her, her trying to save the art doesn't, uh, isn't the only thing that happened during that time. The president's underwear was stolen. So that is that. That's uh, right. That's what goes down in history. <laughs> that is crazy. All right, let's talk about. Um, and by the way, the rebuilding of it—they get back into normal. And so, who was the next one to have it after Madison? I'm trying to think of my history here um, to get back in after that. Because did the next president have a fully White House, or did they have to keep reconstructing it or keep keep fixing it after the burn? No, they rebuilt the, the White House, and actually, they rebuilt it again in the 1950s. And this is kind of a weird story. It was uh, President Truman uh, was in then. And I believe it was uh, Bess Truman, uh, the president's daughter, uh, had a piano up on there on the second floor. And she was playing this piano one day, and a leg of the piano broke through the floor. What? So, yeah, right up. She's, I got this grand piano, and it's got a heavy instrument, and it broke through the floor. So the little egg and the whole thing didn't come crashing down. It, was, it wasn't that catastrophic. So they brought, bring in the engineers and they let the place over and they decide, you know, it's about to fall apart. It's this old 200 or so year old building by now, 150 year old building, and it's, it's pretty much a mess. So they have uh, decided to rebuild the White House and what they're going to do is they're going to leave the interior walls up and they're going to gut the, I'm sorry, they're going to leave the exterior walls up and they're going to gut the interior and completely rebuild uh, the interior rooms. 
So uh, the, the Trumans move out, of course, while this uh, work is going on. But to uh, to, to do the uh, uh, demolition on the inside of the White House, they need to bring a bulldozer in to knock things down and, and dig the new basement and that sort of thing. So they want to, the engineers want to cut a hole in the exterior wall of the White House so they can drive the bulldozer in. So they tell Truman about this, and he says, absolutely not. You're not going to cut a hole in the wall of the White House. So to get the bulldozer into the White House, they took it apart piece by piece. They carried it in through the front door, and then they reassembled it inside the White House. Including the ball that knocks everything out. Including that heavy ball. Oh, my goodness. get in there. (laughs) That's crazy. Just like the director said, right? Well, and so that's kind of, I guess, the way it's become, because it's a beautiful place today. Like, you look at the exterior, I guess it's become, you know, just fixed along the way. Any other renovations that we may not have known about uh, after the 50s, or is that the last time? Well, there was a a kind of a funny story involving Bill Clinton uh, shortly after uh, he got, you know, he he got into the White House. Uh, Clinton is... is, um, walking down the hallway uh, with his aides, and they're talking about whatever presidents talk about to their aides. And Clinton sees there's a guy working on the uh, air conditioning. Okay. Okay. So he stops and he talks to the guy, and he spends the next half hour helping him fix the air conditioner in the White House, passing him tools and, and that sort of thing, and, you know, really kind of getting his hands dirty. So... Uh, whatever whatever the free world uh, was doing at that moment had to wait for about a half hour while Clinton helped uh, to fix the White House air conditioner. <laughs> what did he? What knowledge did he have to do that? I guess he just was okay working around the house. I mean, that's kind of that's different. I guess he was just a handy guy. I mean, I couldn't fix my air conditioner, so you know. I guess that's why he got to be president. And the rest of us did. He was good at that kind of thing. That's uh, that's unique. Okay, so in in the Obama years, so the the mother in law was there. That's got to be a story in and of itself. I mean, the Obama mother in law living there. Did anybody know that? I mean, was that well documented? I didn't really know of that. Oh no, it was it was known. Michelle Michelle Obama's mother was living on the third floor. I will tell you that the Obamas, as far as I could tell, were probably one of the most boring families. I've lived in the White House, I found virtually, I say virtually, I found no funny stories about them. Mm. (laughs) As as hard as I looked, uh, the president uh, was like uh, one of these draft beer guys, and he liked to make his own beer. Uh, You know, little stuff like that. But who, you know, really? Oh, that's great. (laughs) Well, what about Biden? I mean, was there any interesting stories on Biden as a VP? Because, I mean, he was kind of documented as sort of this interesting, funny guy that was the VP, and I mean, anything on him that you had seen in the, or any vice presidential stories as well? Well, he didn't live in the White House, you know, so the, the vice president has his own place. Out, oh, that's right. Uh, I believe it's on the grounds of the Naval Observatory. And even then, I understood Biden, he was, he would go home to Delaware, which was kind of just a short train ride away, so uh, he didn't spend that much time down there. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I got to ask about this because I literally live next to Coolidge Avenue here in Queens. Calvin Coolidge talked with uh, raccoons. What in the world? Uh, Tell me about that. Yeah, he um, uh, adopted, so to speak, uh, a pet raccoon that... uh, found its way onto the White House grounds and he and the raccoon became good buddies and he let, would let the uh, raccoon into the White House uh, during the day and the, the raccoon would scurry around the hallways and at night it, the raccoon had a uh, little house that Coolidge had built for it on the grounds so it did sleep in its own house presumably next to the White House dumpster I imagine but the aides would follow Coolidge around the grounds and he would be chatting with the, the raccoon as they kind of strolled around and I guess he was kind of bouncing ideas off the raccoon. Oh you know, my. Should we, you know, should we fund the, uh, the you know, Food and Drug Administration or, or let it run out of money? 
<laughs> well, he was. Uh... All right, now I've got to ask you this because th- th- these obs- insane stories continue in this book called Painting the White House, a novel by Hal Markovitz. And you are a journalist, and so you use this journalistic instinct to investigate all this. I've got to ask you about Hoover because he, of course, was known as fishing while the economy went to crap during the Depression. So any other stories about him that you might want to share with us? There's a very, very weird story about uh, Herbert Hoover and the First Lady, who was Lou Henry Hoover. The Hoovers uh, did not want to encounter members of the domestic staff, the White House domestic staff, and we're talking about the housekeepers, the butlers, the uh, cooks, that those folks who actually live, or I'm sorry, actually work in the White House. The Hoovers did not want to encounter them as they strolled around the hallways or whatever. So the Hoovers uh, had all the domestic workers issued little bells that they were to carry around with them. And if you were one of these workers and you saw either the president or the first lady in the hallway or whatever, you were to ring the bell, ring your own, your little bell. And that was a signal to all the other domestic workers to hide. So they would uh, see the Hoovers and the, the bell would go off and the domestic workers would run into the closets or hide behind doors or whatever until the Hoovers, you know, passed through that part of the building. So, uh, this kind of has a funny uh, uh, postscript to itself. Uh, years later, uh, the Clintons are in the White House. Uh, Hillary Clinton is the first lady. And she's walking down the hallway, and she sees uh, a couple of the uh, housekeepers dart across the hallway and duck into a closet. So she goes up to the closet, and she opens the door, and she asks them what they're doing in there. And they told her that they were under orders to hide whenever they see a member of the president's family. And Hillary kind of looks at them and says, well, you don't have to do that. Please don't do that. So it's kind of strange that this little tradition that started with the Hoovers apparently did not end until 40 or 50 years later when the Clintons showed up. My goodness. Holy crud. Uh, That's kind of like... um... I don't know, that's kind of like the, the real-life comparison, right? So in the 30s, the economy kind of disappeared on us, and 50 years later, Clinton has a surplus, the housekeepers make an appearance. Kind of an interesting connection there. <laughs> I guess you could look at it that way. All right. The economy disappeared, and so did the housekeepers. <laughs> yep. Hey, JFK, I mean, the, the, unfortunately, he got assassinated, but I heard, and maybe you can dispel some of this stuff, I heard he had crazy times in the White House as president, but were they all true? What what truth do you know about the Kennedy household during the White House era, years? Oh, uh, well, I guess, you know, the stories are myriad. And, uh, you know, there's, there's those old long-told stories about the president with Marilyn Monroe. And all I can say is, hey, you know, uh, is that really unusual <laughs> or, or whatever? You know, back in the... Um, 1900s, I'm sorry, the 1800s, uh, President um, Taft uh, married a, was married in the White House, and um, he married a, a woman that was much younger. That was, uh, her name was uh, Frances Folsom. I'm sorry, it wasn't Taft, it was Grover Cleveland, I'm sorry. President Grover Cleveland uh, married a was 49 years old when he married uh, the First Lady Frances Folsom in the White House, and she was 21 years old. So you can see that this kind of shenanigans, you know, may not have been that uncommon. Uh, the uh, funny, kind of the funny story about that wedding was about uh, John Philip Sousa, the very famous sure. uh, director, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Band, band director. Uh, he led the uh, Marine Corps band at the wedding. And the song that they chose to play when uh, the president danced with the new first lady was from the operetta, the Mikado. And the name of the song was, Oh, He's Going to Marry Yum Yum. <laughs> he's going <laughs> to marry what? Yum Yum? Okay. Yum Yum. He's going to marry Yum Yum. 
And that was what Sousa wanted to play during the wedding. I've, I've got to ask you this. So we are with Kennedy in mind. Um, unfortunately, we did have two presidents assassinated. We had Kennedy and Lincoln. Did the White House change at all after the assassinations, policy-wise, security-wise? Like, how did those two really change the culture in the White House? Well, I mean, let's go back to a story I told a little while ago. Uh, Elvis Presley was able to bring a gun in the White House. So, yeah. As so. far as security was concerned, I think it happened after, uh, at least after Nixon. I mean, you know, uh, what happened to Ronald Reagan, he was almost Right. And there's uh, actually a funny story about that, too, not about the shots that were actually taken at Reagan, but during uh, a, a short time earlier, during the inauguration, the inaugural parade in 1981, Reagan let it be known that he wanted to ride a horse in the parade. And the Secret Service was not really happy with that, obviously, because he would a prime target for an assassination attempt sitting out there on a horse in the middle of the middle of the street in the inaugural parade so they kicked us around uh, for a while and they came up with a plan to have the president wear a steel cowboy hat <laughs> and bulletproof underwear and I don't know how they were going to do that but they chewed this plan over for a while and finally dropped the idea and talked Reagan out of riding the horse in the parade. Well, that was smart. I know there was a lot of worry when Trump was walking around uh, on Inauguration Day. Thank God nothing happened to him. But at that time, you know, a lot of people were worried that, that he was going to walk, but he was pretty secure there. So that was interesting to see him walk out uh, amongst the people with security, of course. So that was good. Uh, okay, yeah. so this has been... This has been great, and I've got to ask you one more thing. Which president was too fat for the White House bathtub? And if you don't say it was tapped, I'm going to say, all right, well, who was it? No, it was tapped. <laughs> and he weighed uh, 340 pounds, and he could not fit into the White House tub. So they had to install a new king-size uh, tub for him. And there was another funny story about Taft. Uh, he actually was the first president who owned a car, and he liked to take the car out and drive it around Washington. And um, the other car owners in Washington found out about this, so they would drive out and drive around with Taft. So it got to be kind of a race, and they would drive around the tidal basin in Washington, and it came to be known as the Speedway, as Taft was racing these other guys in his car. I, can you imagine that happening today? I, I don't think so. Uh, no, I, I can't. So the book is called Painting the White House by Hal Markovitz. Now, I see here you've done more nonfiction books for young readers on topics like fake news, media bias. Tell us about that. That's interesting. What have you been written, writing about seeing your perspective as a journalist and the news cycle we're seeing today? Well, I started uh, kind of moonlighting uh, several years ago, uh, writing uh, books, nonfiction books, uh, for the school library market for a number of publishers. And the uh, publishers, you know, have these nonfiction type topics that would be covered by a teacher in class, and they could be all over the spectrum. I've written about oh, uh, history topics like, you know, the cause of World War II. You know, uh, how was the atom bomb invented? You know, all sorts of things to health topics like dangerous drugs, um, you know, uh, mental health topics, uh, social issues like uh, like drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Uh, you mentioned fake news. Um, I did write a book about, uh, you know, how the news media is judged and, and what constitutes fake news. So, you know, that's taken up a lot of my time. I did leave newspaper work a few years ago, and this is pretty much what I do now, and write funny novels, too. Well, obviously, with this painter, it's kind of interesting, but really quickly, as a journalist, what does constitute that fake news aspect to you as, as someone who's been in the field? You know, when, 
when I was a journalist, I was I was a print reporter. I worked for newspapers. There was nothing fake about what we did. You know, we went out and gathered the facts and told the story objectively, telling the people, the readers, uh, what was going on. And this whole notion of of fake news, you know, the the news has become very, how can I say, compartmentalized. Uh, cable television, the internet, whatever, has picks and chooses what they want to tell their specific, you know, listeners, their readers, and that's, I think, how this whole notion of, of fake news kind of, kind of evolved. That you're only cherry picking the facts that you want to tell, uh, and and it's you're not getting both sides of the story. And in the, the glorious days of print journalism. We didn't do that. We told both sides of the story. So, well, has it inspired you to get back into journalism? You know, to, on it. Has it inspired you to get back into it to tell both sides of stories that you feel should be told? I'm sorry. What was the question? Have you felt inspired, Hal Hal Markovich, to get back into journalism, knowing that this is such a crazy news one sided situation? I wouldn't know how to do it. Um, I, I, you know, as I said, I was a newspaper journalist, and it's very hard to uh, get back into newspaper work now. There's a lot fewer uh, papers than there were when I was doing it. I wouldn't know how to even uh, how to even find a job in, in print journalism now. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a very sad uh, state of affairs that uh, you know the, the the print news, which is basically that the best news you can find the news that you can trust is just falling by the wayside I'm, I'm very sorry well and we will we will hope for better days there how where can people get the book and where can they find you uh, with all these intriguing stories are you on Twitter or what's the best way to reach you the best way is to go to the website paintingthewhitehouse.com all right see uh, information about the book and how to get it and uh, how to order it and you'll find some funny White House stories there and an excerpt from the book. And I almost and, forgot uh, to tell you. you needed to know. I almost forgot to ask you the million-dollar question. Have you yourself ever been in the White House? I was. I believe with the Boy Scouts. <laughs> okay. Back back in the 60s. And uh, I'm not sure how much it's changed since then. Huh. That's very interesting. Well, thank you for sharing all this today, Hal. And we will definitely visit paintingthewhitehouse.com. Pretty straightforward. And uh, Hal, would love to have you back as, as things keep on rolling here. I'd be delighted to talk with you again. There are many, many, many more funny stories about the White House. And we haven't even scratched the surface. <laughs> and maybe we can make this more topical, like election time. Hey, any election stories? Yada, yada, yada. We'll, we'll figure that out, Hal. But thanks for joining us tonight. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. You got it. I'm Alexander Garrett. Enjoy your Sunday afternoon. Hal, this was remarkable.